Chronicles Revisited Podcast, Episode 7, Two Plane Crashes That Changed PC History, The Story of Zenith Data Systems. Welcome to the Chronicles Revisited Podcast. I'm S.M. Oliva. I write the blog Computer Chronicles Revisited, which reviews the people and products featured on the PBS series that aired between 1983 and 2002. In this podcast, I focus on individual stories that I've previously featured on the blog. In this episode, I'm looking at Zenith Data Systems, a company that was once a major player in the PC industry, especially when it came to developing portable machines. ZDS ceased operations in the mid-1990s and is now largely forgotten. But the company's history can trace its roots back well before the invention of the microcomputer or even the first transistors. In fact, Zenith Data Systems would probably not have existed at all had it not been for a pair of tragic airplane crashes that took place 23 years apart. Now, the name Zenith may still ring a bell with some people today. The company was once a major player in television manufacturing, and before that, radio. Zenith's history began in 1918, when Ralph Matthews and Carl Hassel founded Chicago Radio Labs to produce amateur radio equipment. They incorporated the business as the Zenith Radio Company in 1923. But the part of Zenith that would become known for making computers started out as a completely different business, also in the Chicago area. That business was known as the E.B. Heath Aerial Vehicle Company. Edward Bayard Heath was born in November 1888. Originally from Brooklyn, New York, Heath relocated to Chicago in the early 1900s. At the age of 21, in 1909, he founded his company. In addition to being an accomplished pilot and stunt flyer, Heath used his business to sell parts to people who were building their own airplanes. After the end of World War I in 1918, Heath started selling surplus military aviation parts and teaching new pilots. It was also around this time that he started selling build-your-own-airplane kits. Heath's most famous kit was the Parasol, which he co-developed with Claire Lindstadt in 1926. This was a single-seat plane that used a 23-horsepower motorcycle engine. You could buy the Parasol pre-assembled from Heath for $975 or pay just $199 for the kit. If the notion of building your own airplane sounds risky and dangerous, well, it probably was. Aviation may be considered the safest form of travel today, but that was definitely not the case in the 1920s and 1930s. Edward Heath knew this firsthand. For instance, in October 1924, Heath entered a 50-mile airplane race in Dayton, Ohio. Piloting one of his own planes, he managed to cartwheel and crash 300 yards short of the starting line while doing a brisk 25 miles per hour. Fortunately, Heath escaped the accident unharmed. Unfortunately, he was not so lucky when he got into another crash six years later, on February the 2nd, 1931. Heath was testing a new design for the parasol when he started having engine trouble. The plane went into a tailspin from an altitude of 200 feet and crashed into a farm in Morton Grove, a suburb of Chicago. Heath died on impact. He was just 43 years old. Heath's mother, Ada Johnson Heath, inherited her late son's business. In May 1931, she sold what was now known as the Heath Aircraft Corporation to brothers John and Walter Clinton. John Vincent Clinton was a prominent Chicago attorney who also served in the Illinois National Guard from 1894 to 1940. During that time, he saw active duty in both the Spanish-American War and World War I, 
reaching the rank of brigadier general during the latter conflict. Later, in the lead-up to the U.S. entry into World War II, Clinton was promoted to major general and tasked with organizing a militia to replace the National Guard after it was called up to replace the regular army. The Clinton brothers relocated Heath Aircraft Corporation from Chicago to the nearby suburb of Niles, Michigan. Two months after the Clintons took over, their newly appointed general manager, Fred Seiler, died after crashing his own plane while attempting to set an altitude record at the Niles Airport. James Clinton thereafter assumed greater responsibility for management of the company, which the brothers eventually renamed International Aircraft Corporation. But the change of name and location didn't produce much success for the Clintons, especially in the midst of the Great Depression. In May 1935, Walter Clinton informed officials in Niles that he was contemplating moving the company to South Bend, Indiana, but instead, International Aircraft filed for bankruptcy. The company's assets were then purchased at a bankruptcy trustee sale for the princely sum of $300, about $6,000 in today's purchasing power, by Howard E. Anthony. Born in 1912, Anthony was a Michigan native who had once built and assembled one of Edward Heath's original parasol kits. After graduating from college with an engineering degree, Anthony worked selling radio parts in the early 1930s before he purchased the assets of international aircraft. Anthony ended up marrying General Clinton's secretary, Helen Ballard, and the newlyweds quickly set about rebuilding international aircraft. Among their first moves was restoring the name of the company's original founder. The business was now known as Heath Aviation Company, later shortened to just Heath Company, and the Anthonys relocated from Niles to its twin city of Benton Harbor, Michigan. This was where Heath's manufacturing plant would remain for the remainder of its history. During the first decade of the Anthony's ownership, Heath focused on manufacturing aircraft components and accessories, such as radios, windshields, and landing gear. During World War II, the company's revenues boomed thanks to lucrative government contracts. But as the war wound down, Howard Anthony decided to supplement the aircraft parts business by selling home electronics kits, a move that harkened back to both Edward Heath's original DIY airplane kits and Anthony's own background assembling radios. Anthony himself developed what became the first of these new kits, an oscilloscope made from surplus war parts. Within a year of putting the $40 kits on the market, sales were so good that the Anthonys abandoned the aviation business altogether and exclusively started selling a variety of electronic kits under the name Heath Kits. In 1953, Heath manufactured around 50 different Heath kits, and the company was one of the largest sellers of electronics in the world. Despite moving away from its roots, however, Howard Anthony remained keenly interested in aviation. During the 1950s, Anthony served as chairman of the Twin City Airport Board, which served both Niles and Benton Harbor. In addition, he owned his own plane. In the summer of 1954, he contemplated purchasing a de Havilland Dove, a British-made short-haul aircraft that had become one of the world's most popular commercial planes following its introduction in 1945. On the morning of Friday, July 23, 1954, Howard Anthony made the rounds at the Heath plant in Benton Harbor, stopping to greet and briefly speak with each of his employees. Anthony was in good spirits that morning. He was on his way to the Benton Harbor airport to meet with his childhood friend, Gordon Paxson, who was celebrating his 42nd birthday, and a local couple, Laurel and Florence Brown. The foursome boarded the de Havilland that Anthony was thinking of buying. At the controls was Gordon Wyrick, a pilot who also served as de Havilland's Michigan distributor, and William Larry Duran, 
Anthony's private pilot. The plan was for Wyrick to demonstrate the plane to Anthony while transporting the group to Florida for a recreational trip. Around 2.30 that afternoon, however, the Dove crashed into a mountain near Walden's Ridge, just outside of Dayton, Tennessee, about 50 miles from Chattanooga. The first responders located the crash site around 4 p.m. There were no survivors. Contemporary news accounts suggested the plane exploded in midair before hitting the mountain. The Civil Aeronautics Authority, the forerunner of the National Transportation Safety Board, said it would conduct an inquiry into the causes of the accident. But as far as my research found, the CAA never filed a public report identifying a probable cause for the crash. Howard Anthony's death was front-page news in Benton Harbor. He was just 42, about the same age as Edward Heath when he died 23 years earlier. Howard's widow, Helen Anthony, was now the sole owner of the Heath Company. She decided the best course of action was to quickly find a buyer. On November 22, 1954, four months after her husband's death, Helen Anthony signed an agreement to sell the Heath Company to Daystrom Incorporated of Elizabeth, New Jersey, for $1,850,000, which represented quite a return on her late husband's initial $300 investment back in 1935. The sale formally closed in January of 1955, at which time Daystrom executive Robert Erickson took over as president of the new Heath subsidiary. Daystrom was a budding conglomerate with its own extensive history. Founded in 1892 as American Type Founders, the original business focused on manufacturing printer's equipment. The company, later renamed Daystrom, experienced rapid growth during World War II, acquiring an electrical equipment company in Poughkeepsie, New York, a furniture company in Olean, New York, and establishing a plant in Scranton, Pennsylvania to build control equipment for the U.S. Navy. The Heathkit business continued largely unaffected by its new status as a Daystrom subsidiary. Indeed, under the direction of Erickson and his successor, Alan Green, the business continued to significantly increase its manufacturing capacity and output. Daystrom even expanded Heathkit's operations abroad, opening a United Kingdom plant in December of 1959. By the end of 1961, Heath produced approximately 250 different Heath kits, and the company had moved into a new 70,000-square-foot facility in Benton Harbor. Of course, by that time, Daystrom itself had been absorbed by an even larger conglomerate. On August 29, 1961, Alan Green confirmed to the local press in Benton Harbor that Schlumberger Limited had agreed to a merger with Daystrom. It was an all-stock transaction, with each Daystrom shareholder receiving one share of Schlumberger for every two shares of Daystrom stock. Schlumberger, a Paris-based company founded in 1926, was primarily an oil and gas drilling business. Actually, it still is today. But back in 1961, it was interested in Daystrom because one of its divisions manufactured equipment that was important to oil and gas exploration. So the inclusion of Heath Company in the deal was little more than a nice extra. Heath continued to chug along just fine under its latest corporate overlord. The 1970s would bring Heath into the latest frontier of the electronics market, the microcomputer. Now, computers weren't a new concept for the folks in Benton Harbor. As far back as 1956, Heath offered analog computer kits, which were marketed as an advanced, low-cost alternative to slide rules for industrial and research purposes. But the mid-1970s was all about digital computers. Heath's first offering in this area was the H8, released in 1977. This was an 8-bit computer based on the Intel 8080A microprocessor. Heath initially sold the H8 for $375. At first glance, this seemed like a bargain, 
After all, the Apple II sold for $1,300 when it launched that same year. And even lower-end 8-bit machines, like the original Tandy TRS-80, ran about $600. But the $375 price tag for the H8 was somewhat misleading. The base computer only came with the chassis, case, CPU, a numeric keypad, and a single-line display that showed memory, register, and I.O. port information. If you wanted memory or data storage or a video display, that cost extra. And unlike most computers of this time period, the H8 was not compatible with the S100 bus, which was the standard for microcomputers prior to the release of the IBM PC in 1981. Instead, Heath developed its own proprietary architecture that it called the Benton Harbor bus after its hometown. Despite these limitations, the H8 proved successful, so much so that it attracted the attention of Zenith. Now, I haven't spent much time talking about Zenith since mentioning its original founding, and I won't delve too much into that company's long and storied history here. In brief, Zenith grew to become the second biggest radio company in the United States by the early 1940s, trailing only RCA. Zenith was also one of the earliest companies to enter the television market, debuting its first black and white sets in 1948. The company continued to make its mark as a television innovator in the 1950s and 60s, releasing its first functional wireless remote control in 1956 and its first color sets in 1961. By 1962, Zenith employed roughly 11,000 people, most of them working at one of the company's seven manufacturing facilities in the Chicago area. But the 1970s were not a good time for Zenith. New competition from Japanese television manufacturers such as Sony began eroding Zenith's market share. In 1974, Zenith sued a number of its Japanese competitors in federal court, accusing them of violating U.S. antitrust and anti-dumping laws. That litigation would run nearly 15 years and ultimately prove unsuccessful for Zenith. But another result of the increasing Japanese competition on the television front was that Zenith management decided to diversify by entering the emerging consumer market for microcomputers. And just as Zenith was looking to buy, Schlumberger was looking to sell. You'll recall that Schlumberger had been Heath's parent company since 1962. Well, in May 1979, Schlumberger reached an agreement to purchase Fairchild Camera and Instrument Corporation for $355 million in cash. Fairchild Camera was best known for its Fairchild Semiconductor division. Founded in 1957, Fairchild Semiconductor was one of the companies that helped to establish Silicon Valley. But it too had fallen on hard times in the 1970s thanks to increasing competition from companies like Intel, which had been founded by some former Fairchild employees. As part of the Fairchild deal, Schlumberger also acquired a 28% stake in Magnuson Computer Systems, which made IBM-compatible mainframes. Magnuson was considered an up-and-coming company at the time, but this created a conflict with Heath, which had a supply agreement with another major computer manufacturer, Digital Equipment Corporation. Heath and DEC had jointly developed the H11, a 16-bit computer kit that offered a stripped-down version of DEC's popular PDP-11 mini-computer. Due to this conflict, as well as more general concerns about antitrust scrutiny, Schlumberger decided it didn't need to keep Heath around once it closed the Fairchild deal. So in July 1979, Schlumberger agreed to sell the entire Heath company to Zenith for $64.5 million. The deal closed that October. Zenith then created a new subsidiary called the Zenith Computer Group, which had three components. The first, Zenith Data Systems, would continue developing microcomputers. The second was the core Heathkit business. 
and the third, Veritechnology, would take over Heath's retail operations around the world. At first, Zenith Data Systems simply repackaged the existing Heathkit microcomputer kits as pre-assembled units with a display. The first of these machines, the Zenith Z89, was a rebranded version of the H89, a kit that Heath had released in early 1979, just before the Zenith acquisition. The Z89 was based on the Zilog Z80 microprocessor and supported Gary Kildall's CPM operating system. The fully assembled machine came standard with a 12-inch monochrome display terminal, floppy disk drive, 16 kilobytes of RAM, and initially retailed for $1,700. The computers were a hit. Between 1979 and 1982, Zenith Data Systems reported sales increases of 60% annually. In 1982, the company released the Z100, its first 16-bit machine since the Heath H11. But as the IBM PC standard came to dominate the microcomputer market, ZDS quickly shifted gears towards producing MS-DOS compatible machines, starting with the Z150 PC in 1984. It's also worth noting that while ZDS had become the darling of its parent company, Heathkit was still around in making electronics kits. In fact, even after the Zenith acquisition, the original Heath company continued to push into new areas such as robotics. The Hero 1 robot was actually featured in one of the earliest Computer Chronicles episodes recorded in late 1983. But as far as Zenith management was concerned, the real money was in the computers. More precisely, it was in winning large contracts to provide computers to corporate, government, and institutional customers. Zenith Data Systems was never a significant player in the retail computer market. As I discussed in a previous podcast, one of Zenith's crowning achievements came when it won a lucrative deal to supply portable PCs to the U.S. Internal Revenue Service. The winning machine, the Z171, was actually a design licensed from longtime Computer Chronicles contributor George Morrow and his company, Morrow Designs. Zenith Data Systems had lured Morrow Designs president, Bob Dilworth, to join them as its general manager during the bid process. And after Morrow Designs filed for bankruptcy, Zenith Data Systems purchased most of the Morrow IP and continued to refine it. In 1986, ZDS released its follow-up to the 171, the Z181, which Zenith Marketing Director Andrew Chernick discussed with Stuart Chaffee and Gary Kildall on a February 1987 Computer Chronicles episode. Andy, uh, an early criticism of the portables was the uh, display. Uh, very difficult to read, especially in the lighting, uh, poor lighting like airplanes, for example. <laughs> it makes it almost unusable. Uh, what's happened with display technology? Well, uh, you're exactly right. We did some early research with machines and would show them to people, and they'd say, is the display on? Uh, two <laughs> things have happened to uh, displays. One of our engineers realized a few years ago that while an LCD may not be acceptable, you could put a light behind the LCD and illuminate the screen screen and uh, still keep it battery operated. And the second thing that's, that's happened is that we've uh, been able to um, go to a screen technology where the LCDs are readable from the side uh, and you don't have mm -hmm. to be directly on the machine. Mm -hmm. Now that super twist you're talking about, yes, we've heard a lot. What exactly is super twist? How has that changed LCDs? Super twist is simply a, a technology that twists the crystals far enough that you can, you can see them from the side and instead of having to be uh, directly within 10 degrees of center to see the screen. So you think the backlighting is a very important part of that? Uh, we, believe, then. we believe it's mandatory for the products. Now, what about uh, just uh, the fact that the, the display technology is moving along also? Uh, 
or CGA, which is sort of the old technology. Is that what we're using for the portables now, CGA? Yes, we're using CGA, but uh, liquid crystal displays display information differently. They display it in blocks on the screen, Gary, mm -hmm. so that you don't have the problem with uh, spots appearing on the screen that you do with uh, high-resolution monitors. Mm -hmm. Two other machines demonstrated in that episode, Toshiba's T1100 Plus and T3100 models, were among Zenith Data Systems' top competitors in the portable market, which at this time was largely composed of institutional buyers as opposed to retail consumers. Here, ZDS was able to extract some measure of revenge for its parent company's losses in the television market. Toshiba, of course, was a Japanese company, and in March of 1987, U.S. President Ronald Reagan imposed a 100% tariff on a wide range of Japanese exports, which included portable computers. This greatly assisted Zenith in winning several key contracts over Toshiba, including a 90,000 laptop deal with the United States Air Force. The irony was that Zenith actually used a Japanese company to fulfill most of those orders under an OEM agreement. As the 1980s came to a close, Zenith Data Systems was still doing great selling computers. Unfortunately, Zenith Electronics Corporation, the new name adopted by the parent company in 1984, was still not doing great selling televisions. Zenith Electronics needed cash to pay down debt and invest in the future, which it knew would be high-definition television. So to raise money, Zenith Electronics decided to sell off its still-profitable Zenith Computer Group in October of 1989. The buyer was a French company commonly known in the English-speaking world as Group Bull or Bull SA. Bull had its own convoluted history dating back to the 1930s, and in 1982 it was nationalized by the government of President Francois Mitterrand as part of a consolidation of the French computer manufacturing industry. Bull already had a strong presence in the American market through its Honeywell Bull subsidiary, and the ZDS acquisition made it the largest computer company in Europe. But size didn't translate to success. Between 1990 and 1993, Bull posted $2.8 billion in losses. The French government decided a strategic retreat of sorts was in order. In July 1993, Bull announced a new joint venture with U.S. discount computer manufacturer Packard Bell. Bull acquired a roughly 20% stake in Packard Bell for an estimated $50 million. Neither side was dealing from a position of strength. While Packard Bell had posted sales of nearly $1 billion in 1992, the company faced a high rate of returns from retailers, and there was growing concern about its ability to compete on technology with the likes of IBM and Compaq. Similarly, Zenith Data Systems was continuing to post strong sales figures, but had not reported a profit in the past three years. Through the joint venture, Bull sought to lower ZDS's costs by gaining access to Packard Bell's supply chain, while the desktop PC-focused Packard Bell hoped that marketing Zenith's laptops would give it a foothold in a market segment where it currently lacked a presence. Packard Bell wasn't the only computer manufacturer to invest in Bull during this period. IBM and Japan's NEC also purchased minority stakes. And the French government continued to pour money into its national computer maker, announcing a $1.2 billion cash infusion in October of 1993. It was also around this time that analysts started speculating that Bull might have to spin off some of its units, including Zenith Data Systems. It would take nearly three years, but that is ultimately what happened. In February of 1996, Bull sold Zenith Data Systems to Packard Bell as part of an unusual three-way deal involving NEC. Like Bull, NEC also owned a significant stake in Packard Bell. Under this new deal, Bull actually paid Packard Bell $367 million to take ZDS off its hands. 
NEC then kicked in an additional $283 million as a cash investment, bringing the total value of the deal to $650 million. The ZDS acquisition catapulted Packard Bell to the number one spot in the U.S. PC market over Compaq. But as it turned out, this was only the prelude to a much more important deal a couple of months later. In June 1996, Packard Bell acquired control of NEC's computer business outside of Japan for $300 million. NEC also increased its stake in the privately held Packard Bell, which would now be known as NEC Packard Bell. Sadly, these deals marked the end for Zenith Data Systems. In July 1996, Packard Bell announced it would close the ZDS facilities in Illinois and Michigan and move all remaining production to California. The Zenith Data Systems brand was formally retired in the United States in 1997, but continued to be used in Europe for a few more years. The Packard-Bell deal for Zenith Data Systems did not include the original Heathkit business. The Heath company had actually stopped developing new Heath kits in 1986, and production of existing kits ended in early 1992. But Heath continued to operate a number of other businesses, including Heathkit Educational Systems, a subsidiary established back in the Schlumberger days. In 1995, Bull sold the Heath company to HIG Capital, a Florida-based management company. HIG then broke up the remaining Heath assets and sold them off piecemeal. While the timeline gets a bit muddled at this point, it appears that the Heath kit name and associated Heath company IP remained with Heath Educational Systems. HIG then sold off what remained of the Heath assets to another private investment group in 1999. That same year, Bull sold the now-closed Heath Company production facility in Benton Harbor, Michigan. As of this recording in May 2023, a successor company to Heath Educational Systems called Heathkit Vintage LLC runs a website selling a handful of electronics items under the Heathkit name, including radio kits, which I suppose is a nice tribute to Howard Anthony, who got a start selling radio kits nearly a century ago. And that's all for this episode of the Chronicles Revisited podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode, there are links in the show notes. You can also visit my website, Computer Chronicles Revisited, at smoliva.blog. That's S-M-O-L-I-V-A dot blog. In the next episode, I'll look at the story of how a former Major League Baseball manager became the poster child for the idea of computers in the dugout. Talk to you then.